Okay, well, uh, we're going to be looking at Luke uh, chapter 5, verses 33 through 39. And I want us to think a little bit about all the religious activity uh, that we do, uh, because we do a lot of it. Uh, We're here at at church, and most of us are uh, pretty religious. At least that's what people in the world would say about us. They'd say, you are uh, pretty religious. There's lots of things that we do that are connected back to our relationship with God and what we think he says that he wants us to do to worship him or honor him. I guess uh, another word you could use actually would be rituals. We do a lot of rituals. And I know that most of us don't really like that word ritual. It has a, a negative connotation, but it's uh, not negative in and of itself the term. A ritual is uh, just something that you do that is connected back to your religion. I guess you could say that's a, a sacred ritual, really. It's something that God tells you that you need to do that is uh, part of your relationship with him. And it's usually something that you need to do on a pretty regular basis. So uh, we could make a list because there's actually a lot of things that we do uh, like that. Like some of us, we do devotions, hopefully, maybe. We get up in the mornings and we uh, read our Bibles, uh, prayer meeting. We get together as a a group with other people, and all of a sudden we bow our heads and we close our eyes and we talk out loud. Uh, Communion, we eat this little piece of bread, really little piece of bread, barely bread, and drink some juice. Um, Baptism, uh, we get in a little pool of water with a whole bunch of people around uh, watching, and then someone dunks us. Uh, we listen to sermons. Somebody stands up here every Sunday and talks about an ancient book, a, a book that was written a couple thousand years ago and how it applies to our life. Singing songs week after week even. Some of us never sing, uh, definitely not in a, a choir, but we do gather together with a big group every week and sing. Um, giving, a fellowship, there's lots of things that we do. And some of us have been doing them for a long time. I know that Uh, We didn't all grow up in Christian families, but many of us did. And some of these things we've been doing for so long, we can't even imagine life without them, Uh, which in and of itself is not a bad thing. Uh, It's a good thing, or it can be a good thing, rituals. Rituals are are part of how you come to know things in a more profound way. If you play an instrument, you already know that, right? Uh, You don't learn how to play that instrument just by reading a book, but by performing certain rituals over and over and over. Rituals teach, and they are designed to shape us. So in life, if I want to become someone different, one way I become someone different is by doing the same right thing for a long time, over and over. So rituals and religious rituals can be a really good thing if you want to learn, if you want to change. For example, say I have the the habit, I get up in the morning and the first thing I do every day is look at Facebook. And then every time I have a a free moment, I get out my phone and look at social media. Whether I'm thinking about it or not, that habit is going to shape me. But say I think, you know what, I'm created for something bigger than just looking at Facebook all day. I want to know God. And so I replace that habit with a ritual, like meditating on scripture. So instead of habitually looking at social media, I intentionally instead quote verses and and think about them. And it becomes a routine I do over and over. That is going to shape me as well. It has the potential to take me somewhere different. So obviously, uh, I'm saying religious activity, rituals, can be a good thing. It doesn't take a lot of work to prove that. But at the same time, we know there's a danger. (laughs) And that's where I'm going today. We know there's a danger. And that's why if I say we are religious, we feel a little bit uncomfortable with that. We're like, I'm not religious. Uh, Or if I say, uh, you want to follow Jesus, here are some rituals that you need to do. We're like, wait, rituals. Am, Am I supposed to do rituals? That's bad, right? Rituals are bad. Even though we do rituals, we do. But we say that, and then we feel like we have to nuance it because we know there is a danger. So you want to live for God. Yes, there's going to be religious activity that you need to do.
But as you think about that religious activity, there's also going to be a danger that you face. That's important to know. And uh, last week, if you were here, we started to get a sense of that danger, I think, because we're looking at Luke, remember, to get to know Jesus. And in Luke chapter 5, Jesus explains who he came for. And he says, Luke chapter 5, verse 32, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And we're used to that statement, so it doesn't shock us. And that's partly because we almost automatically turn it into a principle, because it is a principle, and that's good. But before we see it as a principle, we should step back and think about, in that context there in Luke, who is Jesus talking about? Or at least, who does, uh, who do, who does the people around him think that he's talking about? Because we hear sinners, I came to call sinners to repentance, and we think all of us, right? And, and it's true, because we're all sinners. But in that context, if you think about the story itself, Jesus is talking about tax collectors and other people who are on the outside, specifically. And so we know this has application outside of that, of course. But in that story, if you think about it, Jesus is having a dinner with a specific group of people, and others are asking him about that dinner and why he's eating with those people. And so he's explaining, I am having dinner with these kinds of people because these are the kinds of people that I came for. And who are they? Again, sinners. But who were the people he was talking to, thinking about when he said that? They were thinking about the people who were considered unclean, meaning people who were unable to participate in a lot of Old Testament rituals, who couldn't even go to the temple. And so the righteous, the other group, the people Jesus says he didn't come to call, who were they? And specifically, again, who were they thinking he was talking about? They were thinking people who were able to do all those rituals and who were, in fact, devoted to them, which seems a little strange, actually, uh, because here are people doing a lot of religious activity, and it seems like Jesus is saying he didn't come to call them. And here are people not able to do that, and Jesus is saying he came to call them. And we have to try to understand that. Because rituals, Old Testament rituals, weren't bad in and of themselves, and Jesus actually did them. And Luke makes a point of that sometimes, that Jesus did these rituals. He kept the law. So he, when he talks about Jesus' parents, for example, and about them presenting Jesus at the temple, he's really careful to point out that they did that according to the law of Moses. And even in Luke chapter 5, the chapter that we're looking at, after Jesus heals the leper, he then tells that leper to go back to the priest and make an offering for his cleansing. And that was according to the law. And it was this really big process. It was a really big ritual. And so the point can't be just about rituals themselves. It's not so simple as Jesus hated rituals or all religious activity is bad or something. And we'll learn later that Jesus did save some pretty religious people. And yet there does seem to be something going on here that seems like a problem. It's creating a question at least. Because Jesus is summarizing his ministry focus as calling sinners, not the righteous. And I think we'll see uh, later in the Bible as we look at Paul that even for the righteous to be saved, they need to recognize they're sinners. That's part of the, the key. But this is a, a question, and this whole question or danger or, or problem when it comes to religious activity only becomes more clear as we keep reading the Gospel of Luke because it ends up being the religious people who have the biggest problem with Jesus. In fact, just a couple stories from now, Luke chapter 6, 11. Jesus does something, and they're like these scribes and Pharisees who are watching people who were experts in religious activity, and they see Jesus doing what he's doing, and what does Luke say? He says, they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. And so I, I think, I, I guess I'm, I'm just saying that should make us pause and think a little bit about religious activity. 
Are you thinking about religious activity right? That's the question. Because it's almost like a riddle, really. We, we all know that religious activity can be good. And, and there's actually a lot of religious activity that we need to do. But it's not automatically good, obviously. Because clearly there are some dangers. And it's not enough just to look at the ritual, either. That would be an easy answer, like, just don't do that, but do this. That's a bad ritual. This is a good one. But that doesn't exactly work because these people actually were doing some good rituals, the Pharisees. Many of them were rituals that were commanded by God, even. And yet Jesus is call, telling them that he is focused on calling sinners, and the ones who are doing these rituals get so angry at Jesus. And you know, to even make the question a little more difficult, because we tend to think, ah, that's just the, Phar the Pharisees, they're so weird, they're twisted, or especially evil. You know, if the Gospels were a movie and the Pharisees come onto the scene, in our minds, it's like all of a sudden, the scary music starts playing, dun-dun-dun, these guys are bad. But again, it's not quite as simple as that. That's what makes this a little more complicated, because really, if we were living back then, they would have seemed, for the most part, like the good guys. And I don't want to give a whole history lesson on the Pharisees or anything, but, but maybe it helps you a little to know where they came from. Because you read the Old Testament and you don't read about these Pharisees. But when we open up the Gospels, it seems like they're everywhere, all of a sudden. Where do they come from? We don't completely know, but it seems like what happened was that, you remember, God brought Israel back from exile. So if you think about the story of the Old Testament, there's this nation Israel, and God judged Israel for sinning, and he sent them into exile, meaning another country came in and forcibly removed them from where they lived for about 70 years. And then God enabled many of them to come back, and they had big hopes, the ones who did come back, for what God was going to do then. But it didn't all turn out the way they thought it would at first, unfortunately. And so eventually people started getting more and more lax about the law again. And at the same time, there was this country, Greece. You remember Alexander the Great. Well, he was conquering the world, and he wanted everyone to act like someone from Greece. And so a lot of Jews were beginning to move in that direction. And there were a group of men who saw that happening and were like, no, we can't compromise. We cannot go that way. We have to get back to the law. And these men came to be called Pharisees or separated ones or, or pure ones. And so they were like heroes to a lot of the everyday people in Israel. And yet, again, clearly in the Gospels, it doesn't take long before you see that there is something different between them and Jesus. They have a lot in, in common, but there's also something different. There's a problem, and we need an explanation. Because here's the Pharisees and other religious people, and here's Jesus, also religious. And yet he's making them angry, really angry. What's going on? Unfortunately, we don't have to make an answer up because Luke helps us. All throughout his gospel, he gives us an explanation. But end of Luke chapter 5, Luke chapter 6, he tells a series of stories that specifically you could call conflict stories. Conflict between Jesus and the religious leadership. Luke chapter 5, verse 17 through chapter 6, verse 11. And later on in the book, we're going to get more. But here it's like he's introducing the problem. And this story in particular, helps. Luke chapter 5, verses 33 through 39. This is a big one in that it focuses especially on their different approaches to religious activity, which is going to be helpful for us. It's going to help us see the difference between Jesus and religion, and it's going to help us evaluate our own religious activity as well. But I have to warn you at first that it's a little bit of a strange one, a strange story. In fact, if you look at the way uh, Luke begins, verse 33, you can see there's not even much of a story here, not as much as the others, at least, in that he doesn't really give us a setting, and there's not much of a plot. Instead, he just says, and they said to him. So the other stories, the past few weeks, Luke actually tells a story. There's a paralytic, there's a leper, there's stuff going on. But here it's just, and they said to him. 
which tells us that this story is actually connected to the one that went before about Jesus eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners. So that's the context. You remember how people saw that, Jesus with tax collectors and sinners, and their initial reaction was like, no, that is not how it's supposed to work. And so they came to the disciples with an objection, which Jesus answered. He explained. But you know what? Even after he gave his answer, it's like they're still struggling to process because this is just so revolutionary for them. And so his answer only stirs up more questions. And so they come back with another question right away, verse 33. The first part of this story is the question people have for Jesus. There's a question in verse 33, and there's a response in verses 34 through 39. And the question was not so much about who Jesus was eating with as much as it was about the fact that he was eating at all. Verse 33, again, and they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink, which is a question about fasting and praying, religious activity, obviously, and it's not even so much of a question as it is an objection, and yet it's tied to something bigger, or you could say broader than just fasting, really, and that is pretty much man's whole approach to God. That's what this is about. How do we do religion? I know uh, it looks maybe like just a specific question about fasting, but as we look at the way Jesus answers, we're going to see that it goes deeper. Because ultimately, they're not just asking, why do we fast and you don't? They're really looking at Jesus and wondering, how come your approach to religious activity looks so different than ours? I mean, that's where this is coming from. This is coming out of them seeing Jesus eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners and thinking about the way the other religious leaders were acting and making a comparison. Like, first of all, with John, John the Baptist. That's the first person they bring up. And maybe, I don't know, but maybe it's because they knew Jesus' connection to John. Probably, though, it's, it's more because John the Baptist was popular, and so this comparison would have made the Pharisees look good. Because while they were definitely in a different camp than John, uh, the Pharisees and John when it came to Jesus, they were definitely in a different camp. But on the surface, they did have some things in common, like, like fasting. And so what they're saying to Jesus essentially is that even John is doing what we're doing. This is like how religion is done. So what's wrong with you, you know? Uh, because clearly you're not. You're having like banquets and parties with sinners instead. How come? How come your approach is so different? Which is a good question, actually, because we're followers of Jesus. We're Christians. And there's a difference between Jesus' approach and the Pharisees. They're both religious, but there's a difference. And as we think about religious activity, we have to understand that difference a little more clearly because it's not always just in the activity itself. Here, they fasted often. Jesus didn't fast often. But obviously, Jesus prayed, and he taught his disciples to pray. And even fasting, Jesus didn't have a problem with fasting by itself. He, he talks about a time for fasting even here. So the big difference that's being pointed out here is not in the activity as much as it is in the approach. And to understand the different approach between Jesus and the Pharisees, you kind of have to understand why we have all this religious activity in the first place, why they even had things like fasting and rules about who they were supposed to eat with and who they weren't and all these other things that they had to do. And to understand that, you kind of have to go all the way back to the Garden of Eden and remember that things aren't right now the way they were then because man sinned and, and broke his relationship with God, and yet God did not leave it at that. He had a, a plan. And he reveals his plan to fix what man has broken by entering into a relationship with someone named Abram and promising him that he would bless him and through him bless the entire world. And one of the ways that he was going to accomplish that was by making Abram into a great nation. And we know to do that, he had to rescue Abram's descendants, Israel, from Egypt. And after he rescued them from Egypt, he did something even better. He came to dwell with them. And so it's like he literally took up residence in their camp in a place called the tabernacle. And the tabernacle was a big deal because it was essentially designed to be a piece of heaven on earth. 
and not like metaphorically, but like literally, God was going to live with his people, which was this big privilege, but also dangerous because of the way we've been broken by the fall and because we're sinful as well. And so one of the things that God did was give Israel all sorts of laws and rules to protect them and enable them to enjoy his presence. We call that the old covenant, and we're sort of getting deep into theology now, but that's like an agreement. God enters into an agreement with Israel about how they would be able to enjoy his presence and fulfill his promise. And obviously, Israel did a terrible job keeping their end of the agreement. And they were judged by God, and they were sent into exile, and they lost God's presence. But in the middle of that judgment, God gave Israel hope. And that hope was that the tabernacle basically was only the beginning. It was a, a picture, really, of things to come. There would be a second exodus where God would rescue his people and dwell on earth once again with them in a fuller and more powerful and more permanent way. And we call that promise the promise of the kingdom. And Luke's already told us that this is what Jesus was preaching. He was preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. And yet, Jesus wasn't the only one talking about that kingdom. This wasn't a new subject. The Pharisees and the other religious leaders would have been talking about that kingdom as well. I guess you could say they had their own good news of the kingdom. And their message was pretty simple. It seems like they thought, okay, if we look back, we see that we were judged by God for our disobedience. And so now, looking forward, we will be delivered by God for our obedience. He'll send the Messiah when we prove ourselves obedient, which is why all these rituals mattered so much to them as a way of securing God's favor. It is like our hope is in the law. God was kind. He told us what to do. So let's do it, which kind of makes sense to a lot of people, right? I mean, actually, some people might be like, wait, isn't that how it works? Like, all this religious activity, isn't that why we're doing all this? Because that's like our default mode almost as humans. So why fast? Why pray? Why come to church? Why do anything else you read in the Bible? Because it's a good thing God likes, and if you do good things that God likes long enough, maybe God will eventually do some good things for you. It's like you're putting your quarter in a slot machine, you know? If I do this, Maybe God will do something for me. That's how many people think. And really, that is pretty much how every religion in the world goes. And yet, one thing Luke has been doing in these stories leading up to this question that we're reading in verse 33 is show us that approach absolutely won't work. And if that's how you're thinking of religious activity, and I should say, if that's how you hear us when we talk about praying, or, or reading your Bible, or doing other sorts of religious things, you need to understand that Christianity is actually so much better than that. That is not, 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 not what's going on with Christianity. And it's not even what was going on in the Old Testament either. The Pharisees were getting this wrong because the hope is not in the law or you doing religious activity. It can't be because the problems that we have in this world are bigger than what the law or just religious activity can fix. So, for example, take someone like the leper who Luke's already told us about. You remember him, Luke chapter 5, verse 12 and following, because you look at him and he's an illustration of just how badly sin has broken everything. I mean, it's not his fault. He didn't do it. But it's the result of man's sin, and it's got these terrible consequences. You see him, and you can't ignore this world is clearly not heaven. Because heaven doesn't have lepers. It doesn't have lepers. It's completely perfect in every way, which is what we're longing for, right? That's the thing. What do we need? What do we really need to happen? Because look, You've got to hope for something bigger than just, okay, maybe I can get God to be happy with me so I can have a little better life for a while or something. Because that's not a great hope. Because then you die. <laughs> then you die. And it's not the Christian hope either. What we want, 
what we want is for God to establish heaven on earth. That's what needs to happen. And yet, how's that going to happen? If you think the hope for making that happen is in the law, if that's what you're trying to do here with religious activity, then you have to look a little more closely at the world you're living in because you're not appreciating just how deeply sin has affected everything. Like, again, this leper, because, you know, what's the law going to do for him? If the law is the hope, what can more religious activity do for the leper? It can't fix him. All it can do is condemn him. The, the problem, the core problems in this world are much bigger than you can fix, which is why it's so important to see that Jesus, his approach is so different. And this is part of what makes the good news good news, actually. Because it's not just, here's more religious activity. It's let me tell you, God has sent a savior. And he has come into this world to provide something bigger than what the observance of Old Testament rituals would ever be able to accomplish. And you know, the story with the paralytic proves he can do that. The next story after the one with the leper there in Luke chapter 5, verse 17, because I know we read Jesus heals a paralytic, and uh, at first what we might think is shocking is that Jesus healed a paralyzed man, but Luke shows us that what the religious leaders of Jesus' day found shocking was that he forgave him. And the reason they found that shocking was not because they didn't believe in forgiveness, but because they believed only God could forgive sins, and he did that through the sacrifices that were offered at the temple. And that's why they're thinking blasphemy, because essentially what Jesus is claiming is that he has the authority to do what God had said he would do in the Old Covenant through all these different sacrifices— and actually, we're going to see as we keep reading into the epistles that Jesus is claiming to replace or fulfill the whole sacrificial system. So it's not going to be through the sacrifices of lambs anymore that people are forgiven. It's going to be through Jesus' one-time sacrifice for us. And to prove that he had the authority to make these fundamental changes, Jesus performed stunning miracles. That's a big part of what's going on in Jesus' miracles. He did miracles because he's introducing the new covenant. In other words, the miracles make clear that he's not simply extending the old covenant that God made with Israel with all its rules and rituals, and he's not coming merely to add some extra rules to it either. He's coming to announce good news, Jesus. And I, I guess just in case we're, we're still a little unclear about how radical Jesus' agenda would have seemed, the next story shows us Jesus going after sinners to be part of his kingdom, which we saw the, the religious leaders couldn't process. And it's because, again, 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 their whole mindset, their approach was that God's blessing depends on our obedience. And the kingdom of God is obviously God's ultimate blessing. And so that's going to depend on our faithfulness, which means that when the Messiah comes, He's obviously coming for the righteous, those who are really doing all the rituals correctly, because that's how God works, right? That's what religious activity is for, they think, which is why the way Jesus answers them in verse 31 and 32 is really important, because it highlights the fact that God is doing something different than they were expecting. And that is, as I keep saying, God is not simply sending in another teacher to help them learn the law better so that the kingdom can come, because if they're going to actually enjoy the coming kingdom and live in God's presence forever, they need something more than a teacher. God has to send a doctor. He has to send a savior, which is why Jesus has come into the world. That's what he is doing. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And I hope this is helping because uh, I know it's a little bit of repetition. But I feel like sometimes as we read these stories, uh, it's like we're entering into the conversation a little bit too late. And so they're asking Jesus about fasting, and we're like, what's the problem? Because we didn't hear the first part of the conversation. And so we need to get all the stuff that goes before if we're going to catch the point, which is basically that here you've got everybody looking forward to the kingdom, and the Pharisees are saying the way you enjoy it and the way you get into it is through being more Jewish and through doing all these Old Testament rituals right by trying to be more righteous. And yet Jesus is saying throughout the gospel that no, that won't work, not because the rituals are bad, but because the problem is too deep. 
So the hope is not going to be in the law, because to stand before God, you need a better righteousness than you can ever provide for yourself. You don't just need to do a little better. You need to be rescued. You need to be healed. You need to be delivered. To quote Jesus, verse 32, I didn't come for people who keep the law perfectly. I came for people who know they're spiritually sick, who trust in me and turn from their sins as a result, which is like the best news in the entire world, actually, and should be so freeing to realize it's not about me fixing myself and validating myself. I need a savior, and God sent one. And really, that should have been incredibly exciting to everyone who was hearing it back then as well. Because here, God is breaking in to provide a salvation that's based on grace. And not just grace he shows to those who are worthy, but specifically grace he gives to those who aren't. And if they were reading their Bibles, that should have been their hope. They should have been ready for this. Because this wasn't something that was hidden. The whole book of Isaiah explains how this was going to work. And yet, as we keep reading Luke... Here are these religious people, and clearly they're not getting it. And in fact, it seems like the closer they get to Jesus, the less they understand what's actually going on. Even though, again, they're reading their Bibles, and they're talking about the kingdom of God, and they're fasting, and they're going to the synagogue, and they're very serious, very serious about their approach to God. And so this is heavy. That's what I'm trying to get us to feel. This is heavy. If you think about it, because here God has become man and he was standing right in front of them. The very fulfillment of the Bible they had been reading. And yet they're making all kinds of objections to him, bringing up stuff like, why don't you fast? Which is a little scary because, because we've got the most amazing news, the gospel. This is the best message in the world what Jesus came to proclaim, verses 31 and 32. These are some of like the most hope-filled words in the whole universe, that God sent in a doctor for the spiritually sick, that Jesus is not seeking those who perfectly obey all God's commands, but those who will repent and trust in him. And yet, as we, we read the Gospel of Luke, what we're seeing is, is that it's completely possible for people to miss that. And even religious people to miss that. And maybe especially religious people to miss that. In these early stories, at, in, in Luke at least, it's, it's actually like their religious activity is part of what's keeping them from enjoying and embracing the gospel. Which is why I want you to think about your approach. Because we're religious, most of us. Like I said, we do a lot of religious activity, and it's a good thing. I'm glad. We've got rituals. We've got a lot of rituals, and a lot of those rituals are good. They're important. They're powerful. They're potentially life-transforming, and yet it's not enough. Listen to me now. It's not enough to look at your life and be like, am I doing the right thing? Am I religious? There's actually more to think about, and, and you can see a little of what you need to think about if you look at the second part of this story, Jesus's response in verses 34 through 39. There's the, the question, verse 33, and there's the response, verses 34 through 39, which I'm going to summarize with a question and a warning as you look to your approach to religion. Let's try to get practical. And, and, and the question comes from Jesus' illustration about the wedding in verse 34. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then... They will fast in those days. And the point here is pretty simple. Think of religion like a wedding, religious activity like being at a wedding. And weddings have a lot of rituals, so this is a, this is a good illustration. If you think about what you're doing, religious activity, like a wedding, Jesus is the bridegroom. And so all of your religious activity has to center on him which is the question you have to ask as you look at what you're doing. As you're fasting or praying or reading your Bible or going to church, whatever you're doing, you have to ask, is it really about Jesus and what God's done through Jesus? Because, honestly, if it's not, it's pretty pointless. It would be like going to a wedding and weeping. 
I mean, if you think about the people to whom Jesus was speaking, because here they're supposedly longing for the coming of the Messiah. And supposedly that's even why they're fasting, right? That's what fasting was. Fasting has a point. God didn't just give people rituals like fasting to randomly do. He gave them those rituals to help them know and understand and participate in what he was doing. So they're not random. Instead, they're part of like a script that God gives you to help you understand him and how to live in this world. And so fasting was an expression of mourning or longing. It was a way of saying, God, please keep the promises that you made to us in the Old Testament. This is where we're placing our hope. Fasting would be like what you do at a funeral where you're so sad you can't eat. That's where fasting, the idea of fasting came from. It's connected to grieving and repentance, which is why it was appropriate for John the Baptist to fast, because he was like the last Old Testament prophet, and his job was to prepare people for the Messiah. And in the Old Testament, and you can check out Joel for this, it's so clear in Joel 2, fasting is what people were supposed to do to get ready for the day of the Lord. And yet while that ritual made sense for John the Baptist because of his specific job, it wasn't appropriate for Jesus in the same way because he wasn't waiting for the Messiah. He was the Messiah. For him and his disciples to fast, it would be like fasting at a wedding. The problem is not the ritual, it's the timing. You fast at a funeral, not a wedding. And so the Pharisees' question here is revealing not that something was going wrong with Jesus, but instead that something was going wrong with them and the way they were thinking about rituals and religious activity and how salvation works. Because, you know, if the hope is really in God keeping his promises and providing salvation through the Messiah, what should they have been doing? I mean, what ritual would have made sense then? I don't know for sure, but not fasting, <laughs> some kind of celebrating, which tells us that the way they thought about religious activity wasn't about God and what God was doing, but instead was about them and their religious efforts, which is why they were fasting, even when it didn't make sense. It was about them and the ritual, not God. They had disconnected the ritual from its actual meaning, and so now they were like someone randomly crying at a wedding. Imagine someone who does rituals randomly. I think this would be a good YouTube uh, episode because there are a lot of rituals that only make sense in certain settings, but you do them in other settings and it's completely inappropriate. Like someone dressed up in a Boston Celtics uniform boo, with his face uh, painted green and he's yelling and he's like cheering at a presidential inauguration ceremony. Someone does that one place, and you're like, okay, that's a little weird. Go Lakers. But I get it. Another place, he does the same thing, and you're thinking, this man is mentally ill. And if that illustration doesn't work for you, the, the one Jesus gives here is classic. Picture someone doing all the right things, all the things you should be doing at a funeral, like they're wearing all black, and they're super sad, and they're weeping, and they're mourning. And they're hugging people, and they're like, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. Only, he's not at a funeral, he's at a wedding. We all know that's just weird. And so if you're mourning like that at a wedding, and you think that's appropriate, clearly something has gone wrong, which actually is still what happens with people and religious activity. That's the whole point, and that's why you need to think about it, because even though clearly you shouldn't be doing rituals randomly and thinking that you're actually doing something important, some people think that still makes sense in terms of their relationship with God, because they're doing rituals, and they aren't thinking about what they're doing, and yet they're thinking it's accomplishing something. And Jesus is saying, if you want to know what spirituality as one of my followers looks like, it's not that. It's not mindlessly doing rituals. As you think about your religious activity, what you do, understand following Jesus, it's not primarily about your life being governed by all these rules and regulations and rituals that you have to do in exactly the right way at exactly the right time to make something happen as much as it is about being ruled by your relationship with God and responding appropriately to what God is doing through Jesus instead. Verse 35, Jesus explains, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. 
And you know, there's a little debate as to what that means exactly, because obviously Jesus is talking about his death, so this is a prediction that he'll die. The days will come when the bridegroom's taken away from them. Jesus knows that. And the debate is, some people think he's specifically talking about the time in between his death and resurrection, like those three days are a time for stuff like mourning and fasting. But I think it probably extends beyond that because Jesus actually calls the people in Luke 24 who were sad foolish and, uh, as they were waiting for his resurrection. And so I think he's actually talking about now. Now's the time for fasting because we are longing for Jesus' return. And we look at this world and there's a lot to lament and to grieve about. But however you understand the specific timing, the main point is that whatever we do with fasting and praying and religious activity, it's got to be about Jesus. You have to make the connection as you think about your religious activity. Is it about Jesus? That's the question. All the praying and fasting and other stuff you do as a follower of Christ has to flow out of your love for and longing for Christ and your understanding and enjoyment of what God has accomplished through him for you, for it to mean anything. Rituals are good. They're really helpful if they flow out of, uh, out of faith. And if they don't, they can actually be really dangerous. That's, that's the warning. And it comes from the parable Jesus tells in verses 36 through 38. He, he also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he'll tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does... The new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And, and here Jesus is, I think, kicking it up a notch. Or you could say maybe he's going a little deeper. And it's actually a pretty hard parable in terms of the specifics, because there's a, different couple, there's a couple different ways you could take it. But basically, big picture, it's not too hard. Because you've got a, a new garment and an old garment. And you've got new wineskins and uh, our new wine and old wineskins. And at the very least, those are obviously two different things. They're representing two different systems or approaches. So the hard part, specifically, is whether uh, the new garment or the old garment is Jesus, <laughs> or, or is the new wine or the old wineskins Jesus. But I'm, I'm not sure that's the part that's most important, actually, because even if you don't know that, you can get the point. And the point is they don't mix. It's like Jesus is taking a step back from talking about fasting and more just talking about the Pharisees' approach and his approach. Because he knows at first, from an outsider's perspective, we might think there are some similarities. That's why they're confused. The disciples of John fast, the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but not you. Like, hey, wait a second, you're Jewish, we're Jewish, we're both longing for the kingdom, we're both religious, we have so much in common, and, and yet there's something different. And what this question about fasting is actually revealing is that the difference is not just on the surface. It's not superficial. Their approach and Jesus's approach is fundamentally different. And so Jesus is saying, you can't even try to combine the two. Because if you think of what I'm doing and what I'm telling you as just an addition to all these rules and rituals and regulations that these religious teachers are talking about, you're going to mess everything up because the gospel is something different. It's like tearing a piece from a new garment and putting it onto an old garment or, or putting new wine in old wineskins. And whether you think Jesus is the new garment or the old garment or the new wine or the old wineskins, either way, you just don't do it. And if you did, all you would end up accomplishing is ruining your shirt or or losing your wine and breaking your wineskins. It wouldn't work because the gospel of Jesus Christ, as someone has explained, the gospel of God, the gospel of grace, the message of forgiveness through the work of Jesus Christ, the gospel which we know and love and believe is unique. And so, of course, some things might look similar on the surface between Christians and other religious people. We pray. Hindus pray. We fast. Muslims fast. But look deeper and you'll see the gospel is unique in the purest sense of the word. It stands alone. And so that means when you come to Christ, if you're going to come to Christ, you actually have to deliberately turn from that old approach. There has to be a turning away to come to Christ, which would have meant for someone like a Pharisee that he would have to look at all those religious efforts that he did and he trusted in as loss. 
for the sake of gaining Christ. Remember Paul? He was a Pharisee, and he became a Christian. How? He tells us he had to repent of the bad things he did, and he had to repent even of the good things he had done and trusted in. Like a person who went to a wedding and was crying and mourning and wearing black, if he's going to come to his right mind, he's going to have to say, what was I doing? What was I thinking? And for someone in our day, that often means, I think, to follow Christ, you're going to have to repent of a worldly way of thinking about religious activity as well, which may be more similar to the Pharisee than we realize. Because if you look at the way many people live life, fundamentally. They're living their life like they're their own savior. They're their own God. And that's how they think about religious activity as well. Like, I do this for me, basically. They're somehow at the center. And if you are at the center of your religious activity, how you feel, what you think, what you want, ultimately, you, like the Pharisees, are, are missing the point Because at the the most basic level, the core, Christianity is about Jesus. Which is actually why many religious people aren't going to be saved. It's good to be religious, but it is dangerous. Because it is possible to prefer your religious activity over Jesus. Because it's so easy to make religious activity about you instead of Jesus. And that's why, really, as someone has said, the devil doesn't mind if you're religious. As long as you disconnect the ritual from what God is doing through Jesus and make the ritual about you instead of Jesus, which seems to have been what was happening with many of these religious people in Jesus' day, which is so sad because in Jesus, God is calling you to something so much better than just being a little more religious. If you look at verse 39, and and this verse is a little ambiguous, actually. Uh, There's a couple different ways you could take it. Uh, The first way you could take it is as a warning. If Jesus is the new wine, then it's a warning. It could be that Jesus is saying, look, if you keep drinking what the Pharisees are offering, then you're not going to be interested in the good news I'm proclaiming. No one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. And from a certain perspective, that makes sense. Even now, we all know when someone has been doing something a certain way a long time, and then you come and tell them something different, it's very difficult for them to take you seriously. And so ultimately, it could be that Jesus is explaining what was happening with the Pharisees, is that they didn't turn from Jesus and reject Jesus because they weren't religious, but because they were religious. And they didn't want to give up what they had always done. And, and, and certainly, the same thing's happening Today, it can be very hard to get a religious person to see Jesus. And yet I think, actually, this is more likely an encouragement. And the reason I say that is because if you think about the Gospel of Luke, throughout the Gospel of Luke, he makes a big point that Jesus is the fulfillment of Scripture. And so Jesus is not really new. He's old. In other words, he's not the one distorting the Bible, really. The Pharisees actually were the ones with the new ideas. And so I think maybe after all these warnings, as Jesus is calling you to think about your approach to religion and warning you that just being religious isn't enough, that you have to connect it back to Jesus, and that if you don't, you're going to ruin it, he ends by encouraging you. If you you turn from looking at your world with you at the center, hear me now, if you turn at this, this little lie that you've constructed for yourself, that you really are the hero, I can prove that lies, and I can prove that's a lie really quickly, that you're not actually the hero. You're going to die. And 100 years from now, your great-grandkids aren't going to know your name. You are definitely not the hero of the story. If you think you're the hero of the story, if you think religious activity is really about you, you are living a delusion. And if you'll turn from that delusional way of thinking about life, that it's somehow all about you and Somehow, you are the one who can do this. You are the hero. Your performance is what is most important in this world. And religious activity is about you somehow being able to manipulate God through your efforts. If you'll turn from that to Jesus, to to faith in Jesus, to, 
to being a receiver, to looking to Jesus as Savior, to centering your life on who Jesus is and, and what he's done. And you stop focusing on so much on this list of regulations and rituals first and more on Jesus and responding to what God's accomplished through Jesus. If you'll do that, it's so much better. It's so much better. Like he says in verse 39, and no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. In other words, there's something deeply satisfying in a relationship with Jesus that you'll never experience anywhere else. You'll never turn to the Pharisaical kind of religion if you've really tasted the kindness that God has provided in salvation through, through Jesus. And yet, you know why we need a passage like this? It's because we're sometimes tempted. We're tempted because... For one thing, the way of Jesus is so different than everyone else. It's like being at a wedding, and you're the only one there who knows it's a wedding. Everybody else thinks it's a funeral. It's a little tough to maintain the right approach when so many other people are missing the point. And especially when we grow up in families where they're telling us the wrong way to act at weddings, if you know what I'm saying. They're telling us to make it about ourselves and what we do rather than God and what he's got done. It's, it's tough to maintain the right approach when we've been discipled in another approach. And unfortunately, uh, sometimes we're tempted, not just because of what other people are, are telling us. Uh, sometimes we're tempted because it seems easier at first. Or because making it about us does seem attractive. We all like to look at pictures of ourselves, right? And when we go to somebody else's house and they've got all those pictures of them, it's really hard for us to watch for very long after the third picture. We're like, oh, that's neat that you were in Thailand. That's cool. Ooh, nice hat. Um, we have a hard time because we're so self-centered. But if you're a Christian, you know, at the end of the day, religious activity that flows out of faith and a relationship with Jesus and a response to Jesus is so much better than religious activity that is just about you. And so I want to call those of you who are Christians back. Please don't take this gift that God's given you in saving you and showing you the glory of Christ and shrink it into something so, so, so small as to be about you and what you do. And I, I, I want to call those of you who don't know Christ, who you actually look at the Pharisees' approach and you're like, that? That's me. That's how I thought of religious activity. I thought of it as, as me being good enough for long enough to get God to like me. I want to plead with you and, and, and call you to listen afresh to the gospel because the good news is not about you finding a way to rescue yourself. It's about what God has done through Jesus to provide salvation for you. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. It does force us to think. I know Jesus, after he said these things, I'm sure people were having to think, what, is he, what does he mean? It forces us to think, but we ask that your spirit would take these truths and preach them to us throughout the week, and that we might not just be a church that's really good at doing the right thing at the wrong time, but help us to be a church that is all about Jesus and responding to what you've done through Jesus. Please, Lord, show us your glory and change everything about us as a result, even the way we do religious activity. And uh, we pray this in your name. Amen.